Ah, uh, yes. Things were really nice there for a while. We had this beautiful garden, an endless supply of fresh fruits and vegetables. All the animals in the world were our friends. Everyone was naked. And then we blew it. If the first two chapters of Genesis are about the goodness of creation and the all-powerful God creating a masterpiece of nature and balance and abundance, then the next couple of chapters are where everything starts falling apart. Thanks to the humans. The book of Genesis kicks off the human experience on Earth with tales of greed, lies, murder, and punishment, which may be a normal week on reality TV, but for the Bible and for religious traditions, this is all fairly shocking stuff. It's also difficult to know what to make of everything. So today we are going to tell the story of Adam and Eve, and then the story of Cain and Abel. Like with the story of creation, while we probably know parts of the story, there are probably some interesting details that we don't know. But we ought to, because this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. So we left things off in chapter 2, which, if you recall, is the version of the story of creation in which God first created man, then later woman from his rib. And before God created woman, God put this one guy, let's just call him Adam from now on, in a place called the Garden of Eden. And in the middle of this garden, God placed two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and bad. At this point, the Bible kind of strangely pulls over to the side of the road to give us the precise location on earth of the Garden of Eden, which is, if you think about it, really useful. On the other hand, it's in Iraq. But it's also interesting because the Bible very rarely tells us exactly where a particular geographic feature is. But in this case, we know the exact coordinates. The Garden of Eden stands at the source of four rivers, the Tigris, the Euphrates, the Pishon, and the Gihon. The good news is that we know where the Tigris and Euphrates are today and where they intersect, which is just north of Basra in Iraq. And I'm told that there is, in fact, a tourist site you can visit to see the original Tree of Knowledge. Though, as we'll see in the story, you probably don't want to get too close. As for the other two rivers, they're a mystery. We have no idea what river the Pishon refers to since it's never again mentioned in the Bible. And as for the Gihon, this is the name given to a spring that supplied the city of David, which is located just outside the walls of the old city in Jerusalem. You may have visited there on your birthright trip, but that's obviously nowhere near Iraq. So, okay, thanks Bible for the clues, but in the end, they're fairly useless. But that's alright, because it turns out we have much bigger fish to fry. So as I mentioned, in the garden is this tree of knowledge of good and bad. And God tells Adam, look, whatever you do, don't eat from it, because you'll die if you do. That's what we call in biblical scholarship a super important piece of information. In the opening shot, Adam and Eve are naked, and the Bible tells us they felt no shame about it, because it's like they were living an MTV spring break. Endless good food, tropical paradise, happiness all around. The Jewish sages say that their lack of shame indicates both their innocence and their ignorance. But very quickly, two problems conspire to screw everyone over, such that by the end of this affair, no one is going to be happy about the outcome. The first problem is that, if you recall, God told Adam, don't eat from the tree, except that Eve hadn't been created yet, so she didn't know. 
And you wouldn't be surprised to learn if you've ever dated a 20-something guy in the San Francisco Bay Area that Adam didn't communicate this. The second problem was the snake, the famous snake. The serpent, it was actually a serpent, not a snake, but whatever, the serpent approached Eve and manipulated her into eating of the fruit from the tree of knowledge. He asked her if she knew that God said not to eat the fruit, to which Eve explained that yes, she knew. So the snake says, listen, don't worry, you're not actually going to die. In fact, if you eat the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like divine beings who know good and bad. We all know what happens next. Eve eats the fruit and gives some to Adam and he eats it too. Because let's be honest, there's pain of death and then there's a naked woman offering you fruit. We've all been there. At this point, God finds them hiding in the garden because they realized they were naked and they were scared of God finding out. And when God asked Adam why he ate from the tree of knowledge, Adam blamed Eve. Because, I mean, look, this is Trump's America now. Eve then blamed the snake, and God blamed all of them, and they all received punishments. The snake was made to crawl on its belly and eat dirt. And God mandated that going forward, the snake and the woman and all her offspring would become eternal enemies. Eve was punished with labor pains while giving birth, and was also told that not only would she only ever desire her husband, but that he would rule over her too. And Adam, Adam was punished by becoming a farmer. God said that from then on, he would have to struggle and toil in order to make food from the ground, and that he would eventually return to the ground as he was now mortal. Then God made them clothing, and as a last-ditch effort to prevent Adam and Eve from becoming immortal if they ever ate from the tree of life, he banished them for all eternity from the Garden of Eden. To make sure that they never came back, God put a flaming sword in the path towards the tree of life, and so Adam and Eve went east, and we are told, never to return. So what are we to make of this whole story? There's a lot going on. I mean, this is clearly a symbolic effort to move humans from the realm of oblivion to freedom, and with a healthy reminder that such freedom means having to accept the costs of our actions. God's commandment that we not eat from the tree of knowledge gave us an opportunity to make a choice between blind obedience and our own morality. In order to fully realize ourselves at a higher level than animals, we had to push past our blissful ignorance to embrace knowledge, wisdom, and choice. And while we got that, we also learned that making moral choices comes with pain. We learned to feel shame, we suffered physical ailments, and we were forever removed from our carefree relationship with the natural world, having made our first, but not our last, enemy within the animal kingdom, the snake. We also encountered a very particular aspect of God, one that appears frequently in the Bible yet is often overlooked. Mercy. God told Adam that he would be killed if he ate from the tree of knowledge. But he wasn't, at least not immediately. He and Eve were indeed kicked out of the Garden of Eden, but not before God provided them with clothing. In other words, this isn't a case of original sin, in which God disowned humanity and walked away to leave us to our own devices. Judaism doesn't really have that notion. Casting Adam and Eve out of the garden was punishment for a moral choice, but in providing them with clothing, God indicated a plan to yet remain involved in human affairs and to continue a close relationship with humanity. 
There is a way to read this story from both angles, at least I think so. One, where Adam and Eve are making all the wrong moral choices, out of greed or desire or human weakness or determination to not stay in their place of obedience but to actually break out away from the rest of the animal kingdom. I mean, Eve certainly has taken quite the bashing through history as the instigator who couldn't control herself. But I think there's also a way to view them more sympathetically. They were the first ones to take that great leap into the unknown world of knowledge and freedom, and they got smacked in the face by consequences they had no idea existed. This story, in all its obscurity, leaves so many questions. If Adam and Eve didn't have knowledge of good and bad before eating the fruit, then how can they be held responsible for doing something wrong? They didn't know what wrong was. Also, why prohibit eating from the tree of knowledge before prohibiting eating from the tree of life? Is it better to live forever in ignorance or to obtain wisdom and be mortal? And if Adam and Eve didn't know about the concept of death, since they hadn't eaten yet from the tree of knowledge, why did God threaten Adam with death? It's not much of a deterrent to threaten someone with something they don't understand. And yet the notion of death plays a powerful role in this first story about human life. As Rabbi David Wolpe of Los Angeles recently pointed out, the reason that eating from the tree of knowledge was prohibited before the tree of life is because without first eating from the tree of knowledge to gain knowledge about death, you wouldn't have a reason to want to eat from the tree of life. Adam and Eve didn't know about death until they ate from the tree of knowledge. There is symbolic death too in Adam and Eve leaving the Garden of Eden cast out from the promise of permanent abundance into a, a world that will eventually, for all humans, end in death, even though we've achieved knowledge and wisdom in the meantime. The idea of death is also caught up in what Adam and Eve did immediately following their exile from Eden. They had kids. It seems that these first people quickly realized that having children and a long line of descendants was a way to achieve a kind of immortality. And Adam and Eve had lots of children. But first, they had two sons. For thousands of years, the story of Cain and Abel has captured the human mind as the ultimate avatar of conflict, violence, regret, and the fallacy of the freedom of choice. With Cain as the first person to be born and Abel as the first person to die, the story provides a commentary on the nature of a humanity that has suddenly found itself mortal and with the knowledge of death. Conflict, the story seems to suggest, is part of our basic nature. The earliest version we have of this part of the book of Genesis dates from the 1st century BCE and was found with the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were a trove of about a thousand texts dating from this era, and it was found in caves near the Dead Sea after World War II. In the opening of the story, which is chapter 4 of Genesis, Eve gives birth first to Cain, then Abel, and they are given jobs. Abel is a shepherd, and Cain a farmer. Many commentators have noticed that these assignments reflect the actual history of early human conflict between wanderers like Abel and settled farmers like Cain. Malcolm Gladwell pointed out in his book Outliers that where a farmer has to depend on others in his community for survival, the wandering nomad can only depend on himself. The farmer is much more secure in his property and life. The wandering nomad, much less so. And Rabbi Aaron Pankin of the Hebrew Union College points out that there is an inherent tension between a settled, comfortable farmer and a tenuous, solitary herdsman. This gap leads to different mentalities and approaches to conflict. 
and we find this in this biblical story. The conflict seems to arise between Cain and Abel when they both present offerings to God. Cain brought fruit, Abel brought meat, and God says the Bible had respect for Abel's offering, but not for Cain's. Possibly this is because throughout the Bible, we learn that offerings to God are supposed to reflect the best of what you have. Abel offers the first of his flock, his best sheep, while Cain seems to grudgingly toss some fruit in God's direction. Here, have this. Cain, inevitably, was very upset. And here God explains to Cain the nature of human freedom that would appear again and again throughout Jewish tradition. God says, what are you upset about? Wouldn't you be better off feeling good right now? Because if you don't feel good, well, sin is a demon at your door and it wants you, and yet you can govern it. In this short statement, God is saying that the advantage of this freedom we have in a post-Garden of Eden era is that we can make the moral choice to avoid evil. While it's easily accessible just at our door, we have the ability of self-control and the power to overcome the urge towards evil. But of course, as we know, Cain chooses evil and kills Abel. As the medieval knight would say from Indiana Jones, He chose poorly. Indeed he did. And then he compounded the evil by lying about it in his famous response to God. Am I my brother's keeper? The entirety of Jewish tradition from this moment on for thousands of years is, yes, you are responsible. God punishes Cain by cursing the ground beneath him so that he can no longer farm, and forcing him to become a fugitive wanderer throughout the earth, and thus vulnerable himself to being murdered. Apparently by humans who don't technically exist yet, but at this point the plot is more Michael Bay than Terence Malick, so, you know, details. Anyway, Cain is terrified of the prospect of being murdered, so God gives him a special mark on his body so that everyone he encounters will know that he's Cain and can't be touched. And God promises that if anyone kills Cain, that person will experience vengeance sevenfold. Which sounds really bad. I mean, that's a lot of folds. But with that, we cast Cain out into the wilderness, where the Bible then lists the name of about a dozen of his descendants, and he disappears from the story. There is such great irony here. Murdering Abel not only changes Abel's life by ending it, but it changes Cain's life forever too. In fact, he's forced to become much like his brother, a wandering, vulnerable nomad living in fear of death. As with Adam and Eve, the moral choice he makes carries real consequences, and the harm he visited upon others leaves him at risk too. The Jewish tradition seems to be telling us that threatening the safety of others threatens ours as well. We tend to assume that the story ends there, but not quite. After this sorry tale, Eve goes on to bear a third son, named Seth, and the Bible tells us that she and Adam bore together many more sons and daughters. Eve disappears from the story, but we're told that Adam lived to be 930 years old. He never looked so good. That third son, Seth, who never knew his older brothers, had a long line of descendants himself, whose names are recorded in the Bible on down through the generations. Until we land on one particular ancestor of Seth, a guy named Noah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Catch you next time.